0: Welcome to Australia on this day, I'm Michael Adams and today we're heading back to Saturday the 14th of July 1906. That was the day at Flemington Racecourse that a Melbourne mob sent a bookmaker to meet his maker. It was a tragedy of the turf like no other and the revulsion it caused rippled right into the upper reaches of Victorian politics. 23-year-old Don McLeod was a big unit Five foot ten, he weighed 15 stone, though much of this was muscle forged from working in a coal mine at St Arnold, the northwestern Victorian town where he'd been born and raised by a decent, well-respected couple. Around 1903, Big Don moved to Melbourne town, living in Carlton and taking a job as an insurance agent and then at a pony race course. Three years later, The winter of 1906, Don found himself unemployed and decided to make ends meet by making book at Flemington Racecourse. Don worked the flat, which was the area that was free for punters to enter. Not technically the responsibility of the Victorian Racing Club, the flat was rowdy compared with the stands used by the politer elements of Melbourne society. That said, this poorer class of punters, though a bit rough around the edges, was usually well behaved. But what did make the folks of the flat furious was being fleeced by unregistered bookies who fell into two classes of cheat, Welshers and Scalers. A Welsher was a bloke who'd simply disappear after taking bets. Winners who wagered with Welshers lost everything. Thing was, though, that Welshing was out-and-out larceny, and offenders risked jail time if they were caught by constables who roamed the flat. Scaling wasn't as serious in the eyes of the law, though cheated punters still saw red and bade for blood. The scaler's scam was to pay back bets made on winning horses, but cry poor when it came to paying actual winnings. The scaler would notarise winning tickets and promise to settle up later. So if a scaler made the right call on a race, he stood to make a sweet profit without risking a penny of his own money. On the flip side, when a scaler took too many bets on a horse that won, he had to rely on his gift of the gab to save his skin. As for actually paying punters later, well, that was a worry for another time. Welshers and scalers played a dangerous game, and Big Don McLeod was a scaler. On Saturday the 14th of July 1906, Don and his mate and bookies clerk Frank Ritchie met at a Melbourne hotel and then took a horse cab out to Flemington for the Grand National Steeplechase. Don's intention was to only take bets on the main race. But at the flat, surrounded by excited punters asking him what odds he was offering, he couldn't help himself. Don took bets on the first race that he couldn't cover, and he scaled these customers, causing a lot of grumbling. On the second race, he scaled another batch of punters. Pushing his luck, Don took almost three dozen bets on that day's main race, and this included seven on a horse called Decoration. If Decoration won, he'd owe big time, and he only had 2 pounds shillings in the bookie's bag that his mate Frank Ritchie was carrying. Of course, Decoration did win. Plucky Don shouted, ''I'll pay the winners!'' And then, he didn't. There were lots of versions of what happened next, but the common threads are as follows. Don handed the punters back their stakes, notarised their tickets with what he owed them, and made the promise to pay. According to Melbourne's Herald, he was running a sarcastic commentary as he did this, and this was further riling up the mug punters. These gamblers weren't just grumbling, though. They were really furious, and now they were joined by Don's earlier victims. Someone shouted, get to him, give him a hiding. The crowd surged forwards and someone landed a blow on Frank Ritchie's ear and grabbed the bookie's bag. More fists flew, Don copping it now, and he tried to run for the relative safety of a publican's booths. The crowd gave chase, joined by dozens and then hundreds of other people. Don's distinctive white hat bobbed just ahead of the mob as other punters also closed in from the front and sides, taking wild swings and trying to head him off. In the Herald's version of events, Don turned and stood his ground, laying out several of his assailants before he was overwhelmed and fell to the ground. Now the mob laid into him with their boots. Victorian lightweight amateur boxing champion Roy Ralph fought his way through the mob. He found Don, face bloody, on his knees, pleading with the crowd for fair play because he'd had enough. Roy Ralph pushed Don back to the ground for his own safety. Then he stood over him, punching out attackers, even though some still managed to get kicks in. A constable arrived. Roy helped Don up and handed him off to this copper. The constable escorted Don away and then abandoned the bleeding bookie to the crowd. An even bigger mob rushed Don and they punched and kicked him again as he ran 100 yards to a fence. His back to this barrier, Don pleaded, quote, I can't pay you for I haven't any money. Give me a chance, boys. The crowd surged forward, shouting, Kill him. One of Don's mates, named Montague Miller, went to his friend's defense and reached the center of the crowd. It was then that one thug jumped the fence, came around behind Don, and coward punched him in the neck. Don McLeod staggered a bit, then fell to the ground as the crowd surged around again. Another brave boxer, named Ted Nelson from New South Wales, fought his way to the centre of the mob. Ted Nelson said he saw Montague Miller trying to revive Don, who was gurgling blood. This boxer stood guard until constables and mounted police finally arrived. But it was too late. Don McLeod was dead. Even so, the mob wasn't quite done with him and as he was carried away on a stretcher, it was reported that punters tried to attack his corpse. All of Australia was shocked by Don MacLeod's fate. The Age's Monday morning headline read, A horrible tragedy. Man kicked to death. Dreadful brutality of a crowd. Fate of a Welsher at Flemington. Plucky attempt at rescue. The article began, quote, That a man could, in a British community such as ours, be deliberately kicked to death by a crowd of persons who struggled and fought among themselves like wild beasts, in their frantic desire to each have a share in doing to death the victim of their rage, would seem absolutely impossible in this age of civilization. Like many others, the age blamed the tension of gambling for turning law-abiding people into, quote, a frenzied mob of bloodthirsty savages fit for murder and ready to perform it. As it turned out, other cheating bookies were lucky not to have suffered the same fate as Don that day at Flemington. The Age reported one Welsher was saved by four police from a mob that was intent on beating him, while another Welsher had all of his clothes ripped off as he fled a frenzied crowd that he'd fleeced. So why hadn't the police been able to save Don McLeod? And why had he been set free to his fate by that constable? Numerous witnesses told the Age they'd implored other officers to go to Don's assistance because it was obvious the crowd was going to kill him. One unidentified witness claimed that the cops had actually hung back at the edge of the second attacking crowd until it was too late to do anything for poor done-to-death Don. Faced with these allegations, Victoria's police commissioner promised an inquiry into what his men had and hadn't done. Don McLeod's body was taken to the morgue where, over the weekend, hundreds of curious people had to be ordered away by a constable assisting the coroner. But a journalist from the Herald clearly got a chance to view the corpse. He'd expected it to be mutilated, but instead reported, "As a matter of fact, the corpse is practically unmarked." A post-mortem revealed the extent of Don's injuries. He had minor abrasions about the face. His nose had been broken, and he had brain bleeds. His neck had been fractured, and his spinal cord lacerated. The cause of death suffocation due to his neck injuries and possibly because he'd choked on his own blood. Don McLeod's body was released by the coroner and transported to St Arnard for burial by his people on Tuesday the 17th of July. Tragically, just a few days later, his mother was so grief-stricken that she had to be admitted to Sunbury Asylum because, in the words of the Argus, quote, her mind became unhinged. By then, most of Melbourne's detectives were investigating the murder. This was a massive task because they had to try to trace hundreds of punters who'd been there. Problem was, if you'd been at the flat and were close enough to see what had happened to Don McLeod, there was a reasonable chance you'd been a part of it. Investigations and interviews led to the arrests on murder charges of two young men. They were Thomas Fletcher, a meat cart driver of North Melbourne, and Bert Hewitt, a labourer from Footscray. These fellows, some witnesses reckoned, had incited the crowd to violence and each landed blows on the deceased. The men were remanded to appear at the coronial inquest at the end of the month, but in the meantime, Reverend Henry Worrell, a firebrand, anti gambling Methodist minister from Bendigo, had already pronounced his verdict. The people who were really guilty, the people who really had Don MacLeod's blood on their hands, that it be the Victorian Government's ministers who had done not enough to curb the sins of gambling, and, in particular, the state's Chief Secretary, Sir Samuel Gillett. On Sunday, the 20th of July, in a sermon titled, Who Slaughtered the Body and Murdered the Soul of Donald MacLeod, the Reverend thundered, quote, There are men sitting in our Houses of Parliament on whose hands rests his blood. There are men who have a title to their names, but who should not be our representatives. Sir Samuel Gillett stands in high authority, and I impeach that man tonight in God's name with the blood that has been flowing from the wounds of gamblers. I impeach him with the responsibility for the evils that are around about us. It is nonsense for him to pretend to be powerless to stop the scourge, which is creating around us a very Gethsemane of woe and trouble." This fire and brimstone speech was printed in the Bendigo newspapers and in Melbourne's The Argus. Being called out like this made Victorian government ministers absolutely furious. And the crankiest of them all was Premier Thomas Bent, who led the House in a motion to have Reverend Worrell summoned before the Parliamentary Bar to account for himself on Tuesday the 31st of July. The prospect of making a martyr of a man of the cloth had the usual effect, and the unrepentant reverend answered the summons with a massive show of popular support. Reverend Worrell hired a special train to bring him and 300 Methodist laymen from Bendigo, where they were seen off by 2,000 of the faithful. When they reached Melbourne, they were greeted by a further 5,000 supporters. This army of God filled Parliament House's galleries, its lobbies and corridors. They crowded its grounds too, kneeling and praying and singing and sermonising for their man's deliverance from the evil of earthly politicians. When Reverend Worrell was brought before the Parliamentary Bar, no one knew exactly what to do in terms of legal procedure. The accused was brought in and out of Parliament so he could refuse to recant, confirm that he'd said what was reported, and then compound his crime by saying it all over again in the presence of the politicians. With the Reverend removed again from their presence, Parliamentarians did what they do best. They gave rambling speeches in which they interrupted each other and called each other drunks, goats, guttersnipes and cackling jackdaws. Premier Bent's rambling and thundering was the worst of all, and met with mockery from members. Here's how the Premier insulted the Reverend by taking a shot at his looks, quote, If I was a girl, I wouldn't run 100 miles to have him. Pretty awkward, and as the Australasian newspaper reported of this clangour, quote, Nobody laughed. Eventually, the Premier laid off the insults enough to propose a motion to censure Reverend Worrell, and this was passed along party lines by 36 to 26 votes, with Labour opposing it on the grounds that it went against free speech. Brought in to hear his censure by the Speaker of the Parliament, Reverend Worrell, according to the Australasian, quote, "...betrayed no anxiety or even interest." The Argus, which some government members had wanted to be censured for publishing Reverend Worrell's comments in the first place, editorialised that it was democracy itself that was the loser in this case. Quote, There is scarcely anything better calculated to destroy respect for Parliament. How can members demand a respectful method of speaking from persons outside Parliament? Surely the self-righteous denunciators and the notoriety hunters are entitled to retort, What do you complain of? We cap all your charges with something more odious you have said among yourselves. In other words, Parliament didn't need to be denigrated by the likes of Reverend Worrell when it was perfectly capable of degrading itself so completely as it had just demonstrated. The same day that Reverend Worrell lost his censure vote but won his moral victory, the inquest into Don McLeod's murder got underway in earnest at the city morgue before the district coroner, Dr. R. H. Cole. Over two days, the coroner heard a lot of contradictory testimony as to what had happened at the flat and as to the culpability of the accused men, Thomas Fletcher and Bert Hewitt. Frank Ritchie, Don McLeod's clerk, said it had been Hewitt who'd incited the mob. A chap named Frank Crisp, who'd been ripped off by Don McLeod, testified that he'd seen the doomed bookie running from a crowd as people hit and kicked him. But he couldn't say whether Bert Hewitt had been one of them. Constable E.W. Sharp said that, yes, he'd seen Bert Hewitt hit Don McLeod on the back of the neck. Yet, a witness named Robert Henderson said it had been Thomas Fletcher who'd hit Don in his fashion. Then, there was a handful of police who, corroborating each other's evidence, said they hadn't seen anyone hitting or kicking Don in the lead-up to his death. Of course, them saying that made their failure to save him less egregious. As for the accused, Thomas Fletcher said the closest he'd been to Don was four or five yards, and he hadn't hit him or kicked him, and he hadn't seen anyone else do so either. Bert Hewitt admitted that he'd had a bet with Don and that he'd been angry at being brushed off with an IOU, but he denied he'd been the one to incite the mob. He did say he'd taken a swing at Don, but had missed because he'd fallen over, and after that, he'd had nothing further to do with the chase. The most troubling evidence in terms of the murder charges came from Dr. Jay Brett about Don McLeod's physical injuries. The dead man had a couple of minor abrasions, a broken nose and no external injury to the back of his neck. There were no broken bones, bruises or other skin and muscle injuries consistent with him having been beaten or kicked to death. Don McLeod, Dr. Brett said, had died of suffocation caused by his broken neck. But that broken neck could have been caused by his fall. At the end of the second day of the inquest, the coroner, Dr. Cole, said there was no evidence to show that any blow had caused death. And further, he didn't believe that either of the accused men had hit or kicked Don McLeod. Quote, It might have been that the man's death was purely accidental in one respect. Accidental in that he fell down and, in falling down, dislocated his neck. The fact that the people who had been unfairly dealt with by him had chased wouldn't render those who ran after him guilty of murder. The coroner refused to commit Thomas Fletcher and Bert Hewitt to stand trial for murder and the police declined to pursue the case any further. Don McLeod, scaling bookmaker, had been chased and beaten and kicked by dozens or maybe even hundreds of people. There was no doubt that these circumstances occasioned his death, even if they hadn't directly caused it. Yet no one would ever be held accountable, including the police, who'd let it happen on their watch. On Saturday the 18th of August 1906, Flemington held its first race meeting since Don McLeod was done to death. That day, a new body, the Bookmakers Association, published a list of 15 members who could be trusted, and these bookies wore placards around their necks. But they were outnumbered three to one by bookies no one could vouch for, and as The Age reported, quote, the majority of people had no hesitation in betting with them. The article then went on to describe numerous close calls that scalers and welshers had that day with their angry victims. Luckily for these cheats, there wouldn't be a repeat of the treatment doled out to poor old Don McLeod. And within a year, a new gaming act ensured that only registered bookies could take bets at Flemington, curbing the dangerous game of scaling and welshing. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.